0: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of What A Week. I'm joined, as always, on the other end, all the way in Dallas, Texas, by my friend, Andrew Pettberg. Not really Dallas, the, the the greater Dallas area, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, right, Andrew?
1: That is correct. I am uh, I'm in one of the many uh, sprawling communities of the DFW,
0: as we say. And there are many of them. Indeed. There
1: sure are, yeah.
0: Well, how are things in Dallas today? things are good things are good we've had some
1: nice uh, well we haven't talked about weather in a while i think we vowed we weren't going to chit chat about weather but doggone it the weather has been pretty nice here i
0: have very nice so yeah uh, i mean from our time in in texas october november was pretty grand just a great time of year beautiful weather before it gets i mean it doesn't really get cold cold in texas ever Ice is a little bit here and there but it was never like uncomfortably cold but uh october november was just was really nice i remember like great weather for trick-or-treating for example Um, yeah, definitely some of the best time of the year, I think in Texas.
1: Yeah, it's been great. How about you? You've been traveling.
0: I have did a whirlwind trip to Los Angeles, which was fun. Got to, uh, to meet a business partner in Brazil or from Brazil in who was visiting LA. And that was a great time. Saw a friend of mine out there in LA as well. Uh, but yeah, a busy trip. It was, it was literally out. I wasn't even there for 24 hours. So it was, you know, a four hour flight out there on a Monday and a almost four hour flight back on the next day. Um, but yeah, it was good. It's good good time very busy week though things at hallow are also busy but uh glad we can hop on for a conversation about this we got we got some important stuff to talk about today
1: we do i'm looking forward to it
0: um i wanted to tell you uh i mean not tell you but kind of talk to you about this i have been thinking that one of our future conversations should be about uh men and boys there is a brookings institution scholar Uh, Whose name is escaping me. I was just looking at or just listening to um, a podcast with him earlier today. Uh, And he's written a book on boys and men. Uh, There's a project at Brookings called the Boys and Men Project that he heads up. His name is Richard Reeves. There it is. So he has a book called Of Boys and Men. It's published by Brookings Institution Press. And it is all about the crisis of the modern male. And uh, this is th- these ideas that he talks about in this book, although I haven't read the book, I, like I said, I'm listening to this podcast right now in which he, he explains all about it in the project. But um, the ideas are very compelling. And I am certainly convinced i have been for many years, but especially now ever more convinced that men and boys in America face a serious crisis, Andrew. Yep. and uh how we how we affect that is is going to um how we try to make it make a difference in that is going to really i think set set the tone for a lot of the future of this country uh david brooks even wrote about this in a recent new york times article i don't know if you saw the david brooks piece but no I didn't. this is not news to people like you and me um but people who have been thinking about this stuff for a long time uh and people who are fathers i think will not be surprised to hear some of the ideas that uh, richard reeves is is bandying about because He's really onto something and there really is a serious, a serious crisis among our men and boys. So I think we should maybe um, you know, find some articles, maybe a close read about this crisis and a bookmark it for a future session of What a Week, because there's a lot to talk about here.
1: That sounds great to me. You know, that reminds me, when I was at the Catholic Literary Imagination Conference a few weeks ago, Abigail Favali was there. I told you about that, uh, who's been on, on the Creedle podcast as well. And uh, during her panel, where she was talking about um, women's stuff, all, a lot of this boys and men's stuff came up in the context of that. So I think it really, it's all of a piece, you know, like what is a woman? What is a man? You know, what, how, how do we grow into our God givenness as, as men and as women? Certainly something that I think about, as you said, you know, as a father, as a father of a son and a, and a father of a daughter, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very interested uh, for both of my children that, uh, that they grow up in a world that, um, you know, that, we, I, yeah, we acknowledge we're kind of in a bit of a crisis with regard to to these things, uh, wh- what are men about and what are women about? And that's, that's too bad.
0: Yeah. And of course, the sort of the ontologically or metaphysically antecedent question is that, you know, what is a woman? What is a man? What makes a man? What makes a woman? What is the telos of a man? What is the telos of a woman? Those questions are all good, important priors related, in fact, to our close read for today, where he talks about sort of metaphysical disasters, but the more practical outworkings of these is the realities that men are in a crisis. And the crisis is not simply that we don't know what a man is, or that, you know, young men find themselves not wanting to embrace uh, their sexual identity and instead sort of pursue alternatives. That's part of the problem. But more practically, I mean, we're seeing uh, an absolute collapse in literacy, for example, we're seeing men not want to go to college, we're seeing men drop out of the labor force, we're seeing grown men not get married, we're seeing men not have sex, we're seeing men 36 years old still living with their parents in their parents' basement, you know, obsessed with video games and addicted to heroin and all these things like this, this is what the this is the sort of practical outworkings of the crisis of men and boys, uh, as we see it today. And it's really tragic. Uh, It's happening everywhere. And I don't know what the way back is from it. Now, when I read this Richard Reeves book, I'm going to request a review copy from Brookings. But when I read this book, maybe he has some really good, practical, workable solutions. But I don't see a way out of it from my vantage point, unless we do, to your point earlier, get some of those sort of metaphysical priors corrected uh, so that we can encourage our men and boys to sort of reclaim what they should be and pursue that.
1: I think, I think we're, uh, I think we've definitely got a good topic for the future.
0: Cool. Uh, anything you want to banter out, banter about before we head into our misinformation segment?
1: Well, one small thing, uh, I believe we had a little bit of feedback from our last, from our last episode about our interpretation right. of, uh, the Disneyfication question about, yes. we were talking about Disney and Pixar in particular and how they do or do not handle the issue of mourning and grief and loss. And, um, yeah, maybe you could remind me of what, what the, the comment was that we got.
0: Sure. Yeah. This was a great uh, piece of feedback from our user or from our listener. So Pat, thanks for writing in really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'll just read the email in its entirety, if that's okay, or just about in its entirety. Uh, Pat says, hi, Zach and Andrew, I generally dread getting through your misinformation section and enjoy your deeper dives. I think there's enough opportunities to dunk on the libs in society. And I think you're better than that. I've listened to all of your episodes and have always enjoyed the positive tone. The misinformation segment is an unfortunate departure from that. I don't always agree with with your all's takes, but enjoy your deeper discussions. I'll hold off on the COVID conspiracy rants. Uh, So that's the first part of this. Let me just respond briefly. First of all, thank you. Uh, Love the feedback, Pat. Even if you don't totally agree with me, totally fine. Um, In the misinformation section, I I hear you. I I also don't want to simply dunk on the lips in society. The misinformation section, as we've designed it, is designed to just be sort of a lighthearted uh, entree into the deeper questions. And it's not really, I think it's sort of, it may sometimes end up feeling like we're sort of dunking on libs, but we're not. I think we, um, at least we're not trying to intentionally. Uh, I think we've, we've picked on, we've picked on both sides in these headlines and we've also done just sort of silly things like, you know, wind turbines made out of gummy bears. So it's not designed to be a, a dunking on libs section uh, at all. But I think it does, it does sometimes help to just highlight some of the more um, uh, idiotic or uh, <laughs> lunatic driven aspects of our society, uh, and, and be able to laugh at some of those things, even if they are uh, serious symptoms of a deeper cultural and sociological malaise. Um, but I'm sorry, you don't enjoy it. Uh, we'll, we'll certainly try to avoid having a sort of dunk on libs tone to it, and keep it, uh, you know, upbeat. Um, but I appreciate your your uh, feedback there. And then the, uh, the COVID conspiracy rants. I don't know. Uh, you, you, I know you followed that up, Pat, with a, a winking emoji. Uh, I don't know if you're referring to my COVID conspiracy rant. I don't know. Uh, I certainly never endorsed a COVID conspiracy. I do think that COVID came from a lab in Wuhan. That is not a conspiracy theory uh, that's in, you know, a, a theory that's shared by several mainstream journalists and has written about in mainstream publications like New York Magazine, for example, Josh Rogan of the Washington Post is pretty adamant. That's exactly how it happened. I have said, I do not think it was an intentional leak. I think that would be sort of in conspiracy territory. If we think that the Chinese are designed this virus and unleashed it on society. And I don't think that, but I do think it was a leak from the lab born of carelessness. And, uh, I think, I think that's where the evidence leads us. So I, I will certainly stand by that. And I will, um, I will push back on it being called a conspiracy. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked about any other COVID conspiracy. I don't really hold any opinions on COVID that could be um, attributed to a conspiracy. I think we have Andrew maybe talked about um, the vast profit incentives driving the COVID vaccination campaigns. And I also will stand by my comments on that. I even saw a uh, I saw a, a, a commercial on TV the other day for the vaccine, and I was expecting this to be a CDC commercial. Andrew, it was a Pfizer commercial. <laughs> it was this commercial is brought to you by Pfizer. And mm-hmm. it was a go get your uh, your COVID-19 shot now. So what I've said previously is not that the COVID vaccines are um, are things that you shouldn't take. I've said that it is silly and foolish to ignore the fact that the manufacturers of the COVID vaccines have a massive profit incentive in making the vaccine seem as attractive as possible. And I still stand by, stand by that claim as well. Um, but Pat would love to hear your feedback if you have a, a another opinion. Andrew, do you have any, any comments on that first part of Pat's letter? And I think the next part, he has he has a good corrective for us on the disinvocation of death.
1: Well, I, for my part, all I seek to do with the misinformation is dunk on Hollywood celebrities. So <laughs> I'm not, I, it's not the libs per se, but it is my, my interest in popular culture that drives my, my, um, funny tidbits, but today, hopefully I have ones that are, are just generally amusing and not, uh, not particularly disparaging of anybody.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, the, the Venn diagram, by the way, of Hollywood celebrities and, uh, leftist folks is, uh, it's basically, it's basically one circle. (laughs) That's the Venn diagram. Um, okay. So Pat's second, second comment here, really, uh, valuable here, I think. And like I said, it is a good corrective for us because I think we were wrong. I had mentioned previously on our episode about uh, the the scrutiny line of the sort of Disneyfication of death. I was saying I referenced Pixar and said I don't think, think Pixar handles death well. It is sort of a Disneyfied take on death. And Pat says, uh, "I think you missed two great examples of how Pixar handled death: Up and Finding Nemo. You could argue that both are about the husband father figure coming to grips with the loss of their wife. Not sure if those were produced before or after being bought by Disney. Um." And then Pat says from an under 50, under 50 Catholic father of nine, which is awesome. STEM professor at a large state university who loves teaching people to use R. All right. Um, so this Pixar point. Uh. Yeah, I was wrong. I'll definitely admit that, Pat. I think you're right. Up strikes me as an especially important entry into this genre, showing a man who is wrestling with the death of his wife, uh, who doesn't know how to mourn her, who in fact doesn't really mourn her until uh, a... a uh, you know, boy scout, uh, I forgot his name, Russell, maybe yeah, helps believe- him do that. Exactly. He teaches the old man how exactly to mourn his wife and helps him process her death by taking her ashes to the magical land and quasi magical land and sort of depositing them there and saying goodbye. So that I think is a perfect example of what Scruton is talking about, uh, this sort of learning how to mourn and by mourning to be sanctified, because this man becomes a better man through the process. He becomes friends with this Russell. He's no, no longer an old crotchety, uh, old crotchety uh, widower, but a loving sort of grandfather type figure. And I think that's perfect. And the exact opposite of what I was claiming in the last, uh, the last episode, finding Nemo. I take your point. I think it's still... It's still a little bit weak. I don't really think there's much mourning going on or much processing of mourning because the mom dies and that's sort of it. Um, there is, the, the bond between father and son becomes a lot stronger in that, but it's not really through the process of mourning per se, I don't think. But it, but it does it does handle death uh, in, a, in a more sensitive way, I think, than I was giving it credit for. So I still think that's a useful, useful corrective. Those are my comments, but Andrew, what do you think? I know you've seen both films as well.
1: Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I agree with everything you said about Up. Uh, I think the opening sequence of Up is one of the very best things uh, that has that Disney's put on screen in, yeah. in modern times. It, I remember my wife and I saw it at the movie theater. In fact, I believe she was pregnant with our first child at the time when we were at the movie theater watching the movie. And, you know, the whole thing is a montage of the life that he had with his wife. And then she dies. And it's just devastating. I mean, we were both just kind of moved to tears watching that. Um, I'll just add one thing about the the process of mourning for him. You'll remember that in the montage, one of the one of the great sadnesses that he and his wife experienced was that they had had a miscarriage, and um, and then weren't able to have children. They had no children, um, and you know the the entry into his life of this of this boy, who kind of needs this father figure, grandfather figure, um, helps with, I, I believe, a kind of closure or a kind of you know processing yeah. the loss of the fact that he had never been a father as well. Um, so I think that. I think that Up is a really is a really great movie for for thinking about loss and mourning for sure. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure about Finding Nemo. A couple of other a couple of other Pixar movies popped into my mind though too. Um, one of them is Inside Out, which is a movie that I like pretty well. It, it's not so much about death, but it is about kind of childhood loss um, in the form of moving, you know. Which on the surface of it. You know it's so interesting to for me to feel an affinity with the parents in that movie having moved my kids a couple of Mm -hmm. times and that sort of thing but it's a really beautiful movie i think about um a young person coming to terms with with loss of a of a certain kind um so i like that one i think that finding or um wali is another one where i don't think that that is necessarily so much a a film that um teaches us about mourning, but it is just a kind of beautiful movie, especially the first half, a kind of beautiful movie about processing cultural loss of the kind maybe that would relate to what Scruton was talking about with Germany. You know, it's sort of about this sort of, you know, picking through the rubble of of a civilization. And like, you know, and while he's a robot, so he doesn't have any kind of like feelings about it. And yet there's something about him that is expressive and, and makes us feel um, that there is a lot to lose about the world that we, that we've built, you know? So I would say on the whole, you know, and maybe we could point to other examples. Toy Story has some elements of that. Um, Soul, I think you mentioned, which I have to correct myself that my children really did like that movie. I said, I thought they were just kind of so, so on it. They really liked it, but I haven't seen it, so I can't weigh in. But yeah, I think on the whole Pixar, Pixar handles that stuff, uh, reasonably well.
0: Yeah. So I appreciate it, Pat. Thanks so much for writing in. I appreciate the feedback. Thanks for uh, pointing out that I was wrong. I think, I think again, the example of up was great. Uh, and I think I also don't know, like you, I don't know if up was before or after the Disney acquisition of Pixar, but I do think that Pixar did something remarkable has done it less. So although I think people could argue maybe like Coco, maybe Encanto, I think Encanto has some big fans out there. Um, Pixar has done something different than the sort of average Disney. Um, fairy tale type of fair uh, and they've done it generally generally well um which is good hopefully they continue to do it but it doesn't like they've maybe gone downhill post disney acquisition uh, but again i don't know if, if up was before or after but e- either way up's a great example and a good a good movie overall so thanks for writing in pat to anyone else who wants to write in please do Zach zac at creedlepodcast.com we'd love to read the feedback uh on the show and talk through it uh pat thanks once again All right, Andrew, let's do misinformation. Okay, here we go. No dunking on libs though.
1: No dunking. Well, let (laughs) well just, just maybe a little, a little swish jump shot or something like that. Just a small one. Okay. Number one. Are you, are you ready? Ready. Okay, here we go. If true, here's number one from the New York post. Biden insists U S economy is strong as hell as he munches an ice cream cone.
0: This has has to be real. There's there's a little context
1: here. (laughs) President Joe Biden. Well, we'll see. President Joe Biden apparently got brain freeze during a pit stop at an Oregon ice cream parlor over the weekend and forgot about the millions of Americans suffering financially when asked about the economy. Our economy is strong as hell, he said, as he munched on a waffle cone of Baskin Robbins chocolate chip ice cream. That's
0: number one. Baskin Robbins seems kind of like a lowbrow ice cream for the president of the United States, so that's the one thing that gives me pause here. But okay, especially in Oregon, right? Seems like it would yeah. be like a craft ice cream. I mean, Oregon, by the way, is the home of the best, the best, um, the best grocery store ice cream made in America, and that is Tillamook ice cream. If you've not had oh. Tillamook, highly recommend Andrew. Tillamook ice cream is the best ice cream that is out there. I'm a big, I'm an ice cream connoisseur, so I've mm. you know s- self identified ice cream connoisseur, so I've had a lot of them. Mm. Tillamook, head and shoulders above the rest of them as far as quality. All their flavors are delicious. Uh, they've got some really good ones. The latest I've been enjoying is Tillamook mudslide. Highly chocolate. I'm a chocolate purist when it comes to ice cream. Uh, and it's delicious. So there's also like a peaches and cream. There's a, uh, a cherry. There's uh, a like peanut butter variety. There's a cookie dough that's really, it'll knock your socks off. So Tillamook ice cream. It's, I don't know, I, this, this gives me pause. I was tracking with it. I was thinking this had to be true, Andrew, until you got to the, um, the Baskin Robbins. And that is, I don't okay. know. I'll have to think through that one. What else we got? I
1: believe I have had that brand by the way, but you it's are good. obviously, uh, a superior, uh, ice cream consumer mm-hmm. than I, but okay. So hold on to that one, okay. Biden and ice cream. Okay. Here's number two. This if true is from Yahoo news. Millions mistake the middle name of America's 37th president. A recent poll showed that one in four Americans over the age of 40 believe the middle name of President Richard M. Nixon was Milhouse, the name of a character on the long-running primetime cartoon show The Simpsons. Although Nixon's real middle name is Milhausen, millions of Americans express certainty in their false memory <coughs> excuse me, of the 37th president's name. Representing the phenomenon known as the Mandela effect, a term derived from the false memory that millions have of the South African activist and future president Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. Okay.
0: So. This also sounds very believable. I am familiar with the Mandela effect. So that is, that is true. The question is about the, uh, uh, the, the Millhouse versus Millhausen, right? Cause I not mm-hmm. d- I didn't know his middle name Milhausen. Yeah, I I always just Richard Richard Milhausen. Yeah. Okay. So Milhausen is the Simpson character. Simpsons character. Milhausen is his actual name. Millions of people think it's Milhaus. False memory that he's named after the Simpsons. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Vice versa, probably. But yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. You good? All right. So that's number two. Here's number three. Excuse me. All right. This one is from AP News, if true. The title is, are you a mosquito magnet? A new study finds that some people really are mosquito magnets and it probably has to do with the way they smell. The researchers found that people who are most attractive to mosquitoes produce a lot of certain chemicals on their skin that are tied to smell. And bad news for mosquito magnets, the blood suckers, the blood suckers, stay loyal to their favorites over time. Um, scientists held a round-robin tournament and ended up with a striking gap. The biggest mosquito magnet was around 100 times more attractive to the mosquitoes been the last place finisher
0: wow so you imagine winning people, that competition and realizing you're one of earth's I know. most mosquito attractive humans
1: isn't that interesting
0: that is very interesting
1: all right so that's number three mosquito magnet you hear sometimes out in the world people think they're mosquito magnets this okay. this article if true says yeah they're right
0: all right okay. what do you think tough one i still think i mean the baskin robbins thing threw me a bit but i'm still going to come back to this this sounds this sounds quintessentially joseph robinette biden jr to me uh it is junior right joseph robinette biden jr i think it is i think he's i think he's a biden junior um it sounds like him i'm gonna guess the first one is true you are correct it's yes. true all right yes. yes he he now
1: has quite a reputation for uh getting these gigantic ice cream cones when he's out you know out and about which and which, yeah by the
0: way i think is is a you know one of the one of the best decisions he's made just get an ice cream whenever you can i strongly support this policy position of of president biden
1: i mean who doesn't like ice cream so right. that's kind of a political winner every time right yeah but it is a little weird when you're munching on a giant ice cream cone <laughs> and uh and then you do say that the economy is strong as hell um when of course you know food prices are up gas prices i would are be up, curious to know
0: how much he paid for that ice cream mm. i mean he probably mm-hmm. didn't pay for it himself but i'd be curious to know You know, if he saw the price tag of that ice cream and then still felt confident, it was probably a $6 ice cream cone. It probably was. Yeah. If he still felt confident saying this economy is strong as hell. Yeah. So,
1: Hey, just a little more context about this, just so you can see what came out of his mouth before he uttered the, the, uh, the tagline, our economy is strong as hell. He said, I'm not concerned about the strength of the dollar. I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Does that make sense? That's what he he said. (laughs) Does that make sense? It actually
0: doesn't make sense at all. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and so then, uh, yeah. Asked to explain, Biden seventy nine replied, "Our economy is strong as hell," wow. and then took a munch off of his ice cream cone. That, so that's, that's one does. That's the story, and it's wow. true. Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's 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 really that's that's something. Okay. Well, my advice for the president there is: next time you're in Oregon, get Tillamook ice cream uh, rather than Baskin Robbins, and I will leave my advice there. All right. Okay. So
1: you're left with two and three.
0: Yeah. Two and three. The, um, I don't know. The mosquito thing seems kind of real to me and the millhouse thing, the Mandela effect, definitely real. The millhouse thing maybe not real, but I do love it. So I'm going to go mosquito is real millhouse, not real.
1: You are correct, sir. Yes, it is
0: true that there, there
1: is such a, such a person as a mosquito magnet. My mother-in-law is always saying that mosquitoes love her because she's sweet and she gets bitten all the time well it turns out she's right
0: there you go Um, my mom was also a mosquito magnet yeah Uh, really yeah and Mm -hmm. i think one of my sisters maybe yeah i mean if there are mosquitoes around they're gonna they're gonna find you you know and um i've never really had an issue with that but my dad tells these stories of you know him sitting next to my mom and my mom gets all bitten up and my dad doesn't get a single thing it's just it's science apparently it's real apparently so
1: but the you worst part of that
0: though, is that it's, it, they, they, they stay with you, you know, like it's not, it's not like if you move to a new locale perhaps, or right. whatever, like if you're, if you're a mosquito magnet, you're stuck. It does kind of seem like it just has
1: to be your cross to bear. If it turns yeah. out you are, you're one of these, one of these magnets. Alas. All right. But yes, you were right. That number two millions mistake, the middle name of America's 37th president. That one is False and uh, i cooked that one up completely because my daughter amy and i have been talking about the mandela effect a lot lately i yeah. told her about this and she's now very fascinated with this idea as i am um mm-hmm. the berenstain bears for example yeah uh, the monopoly man having a monocle all these yep. things i would swear on a stack of bibles are true and it turns out you know they're not what i remembered so yeah, it turns out Richard M. Nixon's middle name is Milhouse, not Milhausen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the character on The Simpsons is named presumably after uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. But uh, I don't know, wouldn't that be Wait, funny? so? It is Milhouse.
0: That is his name.
1: Yeah, his middle name really is Milhouse. Oh, okay. Not Milhausen. Yeah, see, I didn't
0: even I didn't even know that. I uh, I thought that yeah. This, this shows my ignorance of our president's middle names, but all I've ever heard is Richard M. Nixon have not actually Mm -hmm. heard Milhouse, but, uh, that makes sense. Makes sense as to where the Simpsons character comes from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Mandela effect is really interesting. It raises all sorts of questions about how our brains construct reality around us. Uh, I remember first reading about it probably, I don't know, a year or two ago in an article that described how, yeah, Mandela obviously never did die in prison, but so many people think he did. Uh, and then I think the monopoly man was mentioned in that one as well. Um, and there was, there were some others, but if you, if you search this Mandela effect examples, you'll see a bunch of them and you'll probably find yourself believing half of them until you're, you're corrected by, by the record. It's really remarkable. You know,
1: one of them, Zach, uh, this will keep our streak alive of mentioning Elon Musk in, in, in every podcast. One of them is that Elon Musk maybe didn't exist before about the year 2013 or something which is a theory that i that i'm willing to entertain i have to admit i mean how is it how did i never heard of this guy until like a year ago or you know whatever 3 years ago and now he's like everywhere, everywhere. all the yeah. time it's true it. It, yeah.
0: it's it's really it is really remarkable uh yeah i mean i think i'd probably heard of him about 10 years ago but he was a sort of tangential fringe figure associated with you know SpaceX, that sort of moonshot company, and maybe yeah. Tesla, and now, you know, ninety percent of the world's population knows who Elon Musk. is. Maybe that's a little over, overstated, but a lot of people know who Elon Musk is, and it's well, crazy. You know, do you know by
1: the way one of the re, one of the explanations for what why the Mandela Effect began, if it if it's a real thing, it was uh, when they. No when they turned on the particle collider machine underneath the city of Geneva, Switzerland, I think it was around 2009, 2010. Yeah. And they might've created a black hole, which has created a whole alternate reality that we now inhabit. So makes sense. Yeah. I I'm wonder a, what our I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm Wikipedia cons- right now.
0: Okay. And, uh, yeah. have Some examples here. So you yeah. already mentioned the Berenstain bears being mm-hmm. Berenstein, mm-hmm. uh, the logo of clothing brand fruit of the loom featuring a cornucopia. Definitely until this exact moment thought it definitely featured a cornucopia uh the existence of a 1990s movie titled Shazam starring comedian Sinbad as a genie yeah um what else here uh Mandela's death okay maybe that's it in the Wikipedia one but there are uh off of Wikipedia there are a ton of examples That's it's, it's yeah, pretty fun there are
1: so many Go But I wonder yourself. what uh I wonder what our our um our commentator Pat will think of our uh of my I suppose uh conspiracy theorizing here about the Mandela effect he teaches in a STEM discipline. So maybe he can explain to maybe. us the, the physics of this.
0: Indeed. Yeah. The, uh, the CERN particle accelerator opened up a world of false memories. All, uh, yeah, the false memories are just overlaps from various dimensions of the multiverse, right? I, I mean, it's, it's the cross, the crossover events or the, <laughs> the, 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 the false memories. Uh, speaking of which, be- there's, there's an author named Blake Crouch who, um, writes in this sort of genre, sort of speculative sci-fi, uh, that has some grounding in real life physics. So he has one book called dark matter that, that sort of delves into the multiverse. He has another book called recursion, which features an Elon Musk type Titan character actually, who's doing these, um, kind of like Elon Musk's Neuralink, But this person is trying to figure out ways to, uh, preserve consciousness and, um, create sort of digital archives of memories and then recreate those. And then his, his most recent one is called Upgrade. It's all about genomic sequ- sequencing and genomic upgrades. Um, and it's, I mean, his stuff, his stuff stretches the limits of plausibility a little bit, but only a little bit. And they're always really fun thrillers. So check out Blake Crouch's books. Hmm. Um, it's my, my free recommendation before the actual recommendation section. Um, but yeah, those were, those were good misinformation ones. Uh, Andrew, thanks for bringing those to the table. I liked it. All right. Should we move on to our next one? Let's do it. Okay. For the close read today, we have a suggestion from Andrew. This is a piece by Michael Hampy called Are We Post-Liberal Yet? This is published in New Polity. And for those who are not familiar with it, New Polity is, a, uh, is an Ohio-based Catholic journal uh, about building a new polity. And it is staffed mostly or maybe entirely by Catholic integralists, some of whom identify with the post-liberal movement, maybe even many of whom identify with post liberalism, but perhaps surprisingly because of that, this Hanby piece is a is a critique of post-liberalism. And um and not a not too weak of a critique either. I mean it's he's a pretty it's a pretty uh heavy-handed critique where he um he criticizes some of the underlying presuppositions of the sort of modern strand of integralism and in particular this new strand of thought called post liberalism. And uh I am definitely prepared to kind of give an overview of this article. It's a long one. I encourage you to read it if you want to. Uh, I will link it in the show notes. Uh, Hanby has a way with words, but he's also a very well-read scholar and he drops a lot of references and can write in um, some fairly opaque prose sometimes. So it is a little bit tough to get through. I took notes as I was going through to make sure I uh, was capturing everything he was trying to get at. Uh, but it's definitely worth your time. So if you are so inclined, I encourage you to um, click the link in the show notes, uh, open it up, or better yet, subscribe to New Polity so you can get a print copy in your mailbox and sit down in front of a fire, perhaps with a pipe or a whiskey or a glass of wine and and read this article, Are We Post-Liberal Yet? by Michael Hanby. Um, maybe as a, as a prelude to talking about the actual post-liberal piece, Andrew, we should talk about post-liberalism in this yeah. sort of emergent post-liberal movement in the US. So we had, we had, I had not asked you this beforehand, but are you, uh, are you able to give maybe a, just a very quick overview of what is post-liberalism and maybe some of its, some of its leading lights, you know, Sarabha Mari and Adrian Vermeule and, uh, to some extent, Rod Dreyer, et cetera.
1: Sure. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on all of this, but, uh, yeah, the first thing I want to say is, you know, Michael Hanby's critique of post-liberalism, the first thing to say, Is you know it's not because he's a liberal. Uh, It's it's sort of a it's a it's a bigger critique in a sense. It's sort of a critique of like almost of everything really. I mean this thing is so comprehensive. But but yeah the kind of liberal post liberal thing. Um, A lot of this in the popular culture has has uh, stemmed from the book by Patrick Deneen called Why Liberalism Failed, in which he argues for a popular audience that there are certain things that are sort of inherent to Big L liberalism. We're not talking here about liberal, like the Democratic Party liberal. We're talking about kind of, you know, the 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 foundational stuff about American society, Western democracies, that that kind of thing, Um, that you know prioritizes the rights of the individual and you know a certain conception of freedom, and it goes on and on and on from there. And and what Deneen argues is that kind of baked into that from the beginning is is a problem that is kind of um uh, manifesting itself now um you know namely that it the whole thing just kind of just kind of breaks apart when we you know we turn into ourselves as kind of these individual autonomous units and uh, we don't have enough kind of cohesive stuff to bind us together anymore in the form of culture um and so you know he he leads the way along with others like you mentioned Sora Bamari um who's a journalist um Uh, Rod Dreyer, also a journalist, uh, although his take is a little different on some of this stuff than some of these other guys. And yeah, people like Adrian Vermeule, who's a legal scholar at Harvard, and Chad Pecknold, who is a a theologian at Catholic University of America, and then a lot of other people besides, you know, are saying, okay, well, so we've got this post-liberal reality now, what do we do about it? you know how do we move forward do we kind of contend for power do we theorize do we sort of try to build new new things that are going to kind of allow us to survive the coming onslaught that that we're going to be experiencing so i guess you know i would stop there and and a lot of other things that uh, that are pertinent to this liberal post liberal debate will come out in the in the hanby article itself but the thing that i I'll, I'll just end with this point which is there are a lot of people in fact i would think the vast majority of people out there in American society who have no idea whatsoever what you're talking about. If you say liberal, post-liberal, I mean, this is a debate that is not happening at the popular level at all. So I think that's a significant data point um, when we're when we're when we're having this conversation, whether it's about the post-liberal order or integralism, which is the idea that you know there can be a kind of reunion or or, or resurrection of the idea of a kind of um, you know uh, altar and throne, um, kind of based society or something like that. Most people, especially in the United States, they just don't know anything about any of this. Um, but it's important and interesting for a lot of reasons, some of which Michael Hanby is getting at here. So I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, maybe just, I can add a few comments to that. And then we'll talk specifically about the Hanby, uh, critique the, the, the self-identified post liberals, uh, including some of those names that we've already mentioned, uh, they've grabbed that mantle of post-liberalism for themselves, I think for two reasons. One, in recognition that we are already in, to some degree or another, in fact, they would say, I think probably to a great degree, we're already in this post-liberal state. And what they mean by that is that America, this republic, was founded on classically liberal principles, that every man has a right to life, to liberty, to property. And the government's chief role is, in fact, to secure those principles so that everyone can have uh, a free and flourishing existence even if that means that that existence is going to be basically a sort of um uh atomized existence or perhaps we could go back to the phaser the phaser language of sort of atomized onanism uh their critique of liberalism is that it has exactly done that that it has led to this sort of atomized onanism and that it has also simultaneously just driven us to greater and greater de- degrees of uh, political polarization and that it has driven us to greater and greater degrees of absolute godlessness and moral corruption and societal decay. So those guys look at it and say like like in the, the language of Dinin's book this is how and why liberalism failed. So they say we're post liberals. We're post liberals because we one recognize that we are not really living in a in a liberal society anymore but two because we don't actually think that the liberal society is the best way to achieve things so they say a couple of things they say basically the law is a teacher and we should shape laws to teach people how to think and what to think about what is the good Uh, And this is why you sometimes hear the language of common good constitutionalism bandied about by these folks as well Um, and two that we actually should not be skeptical of coercion to achieve the goods that we should achieve. Uh, Part of the classical liberal conception is that coercion is bad. Give me liberty or give me death. I will never be coerced if I can avoid it. The post-liberals say, and I mean, today's leftist totalitarians say the same thing. They say, no, coercion's just a necessary tool for us to achieve the type of society that we want to achieve, right? So the post-liberals say, no, actually, we should use coercion. We should use the power of the law to achieve the type of society that we want to do. What, what does that look like? Well, it might it might look like anti-obscenity laws and banning pornography, for example. Uh, it might look like uh, banning gay marriage so that we teach people what the function and the institution of marriage is supposed to be about. It might mean that we ban no-fault divorce. There, there are a whole host of things that we can throw into this conversation about what it looks like to enact a post-liberal society in the way that the, the sort of Catholic integralist post-liberals want to do. Um, and I'm painting with a broad brush here and, you know, listeners, feel free to send me feedback. If I am misrepresenting, I don't I don't want to misrepresent. And I'm not trying to, uh, to cast aspersions at all. I will say up front, there are a lot of things about the the sort of post liberal, um, integralist camp that I that I appreciate, and that I like, uh, I don't agree wholeheartedly on everything, but I'm closer to their position than that of, for example, of David French, who is uh, who is aligned with sort of the, the classically liberal, liberal position, that the way out of our current, uh, current problems is to just sort of restore and really, uh, Again, wrestle with these ideas of freedom to pursue life, liberty, and property that we once had, and we need to cherish those again. And if we do, if we can only do that and really reclaim a, a vision of uh, human flourishing and freedom, um, then we'll be we'll be right as rain again. I think that's a sort of tragically misguided uh, for a whole host of reasons. So I, again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on on anyone here. I'm just I'm trying to sort of paint with a broad brush, but still paint a picture of what the post liberals are and how they identify. So, with that said. Uh, Andrew, with our sort of summary there, let's talk about this handy piece. I have some notes here, I'm going to try to give it a uh, I mean, I'll try to see what if I can do this in like, in like four minutes. Okay. So this handy piece has four parts. The first he calls a metaphysical, a metaphysical disaster. The second, he says, the medium is the message. The third, he says, a new version of an old problem. And that's where sort of the heart of his critique is. The fourth, he said, is post liberalism, really post liberal. And then he has a fifth section, which is maybe sort of more of an Epilogue, uh, and it's just called The Constellation of Philosophy, and that's the most hopeful note in the whole piece. So, uh, taking those in turn, in a metaphysical disaster, he talks about how um, he has this quote he says, Political order and political philosophy always presuppose natural philosophy. And he says, I don't mean that in that they're sort of first in understanding, and you sort of have to have an a priori conception of those to arrive at the other conclusions. Uh, I don't mean that they're first in intention. You should first sort of pursue the intentions of natural philosophy before you. Um, can sort of get the right intentions of political order and political philosophy. He says, rather, I mean that they're first in reality, that there is a sort of, um, uh, there's an ordered structuring of reality that uh, we cannot ignore. And if we do, we end up with this sort of metaphysical disaster um, that is liberalism. And so he talks about um, Francis Bacon and Francis Bacon's new Atlantis and how Francis Bacon actually more than Hobbes is Leviathan or more than, you know, John Jay and James Madison in the Federalist Papers. He says Bacon is actually more responsible for the American sort of liberal experiment than those other guys, because it's Bacon who sort of combines into this metaphysical soup, these notions of, um, you know, potentiality and possibility and prioritizing those things over actuality. So from. Bacon's new Atlantis is born this, uh, you know, we might even call it like an Elon Musk sort of liberalism, uh, Silicon Valley sort of liberalism. Um, Andrew, where the question is, uh, is not what exists today, but rather sort of what is the possibility for tomorrow? What can we create? And I think from this also comes the technocratic imperative that simply because we can change something, we should change something. So he says, this has all been the case for a long time. We've been swimming in this metaphysical, metaphysical suit, but three things have changed. One, um, various events have vindicated the critics of this scheme and these events uh, are, are manifold, but they include this sort of shift towards totalitarianism. They include the sort of runaway uh, tech stuff. They include the the dangers of some of this tech adventurism, You know, the pursuits of AI that we have. I don't think he mentions AI, but I'll, I'll throw that in there, the, the various pursuits of AI that could eventually endanger the human race. He says, two, uh, post-liberalism has reached the pundit class. So it's not at the popular level like you said, Andrew, but it is, you know, David Brooks is talking about it and, and Rod Dreher and all these, Ross Douthat and all these pundits are talking about post-liberalism. And three, finally, perhaps most dangerously, immediately, uh, social media has made us all pundits. Uh, we all have a great take and we're all willing to pack, to package this take into, a, you know, 240 characters uh, and sort of make ourselves into pundits. Um, in section two, he says, the medium is the message. And this is where he talks more about, um, post-liberalism. He says, post-liberalism, post-liberalism has moved to the forefront, um, of the discussion as part of the absolute, absolutization of politics. And he says, he says, praxis now takes precedence over theory. Um, and he says, the danger here is that we have ceased to engage in the world of ideas strictly as ideas uh, that remain theory, but sort of help us get to the bottom of what's happening. And we have prioritized instead schemes that help us sort of just produce facts or integrate facts without an overarching, um, theoretical schema. And so he talks about sort of journalism that is sort of just driven by sort of facts and juxtaposing facts against facts. And I was thinking here of Vox, you know, the Vox, the, the science-based journalism or axios. They really want to be a, you know, a data savvy empirically driven journalism. And it's good to be data savvy and it can, it can be good to be empirically driven and all of these things. But, uh, when it is mere juxtaposition of facts without any sort of a priori conception of the common good, um, there is no, there's no, uh, no, no real sense of what the telos is. Um, and then we lose any ability to healthily talk about what the telos uh, of our existence is, uh, which is obviously a problem. Um, so he talks about this in the context of social media as well. And he says, social media and totalitarianism are made for each other because they, they, uh, they sort of obviate the need for any sort of um, introspective reflection on what we are doing and why we should be doing it. And instead are just simply concerned with immediacy and with effects in achieving the now. Okay. So then he says in the third section, a new version of an old problem and he talks about um this extrinsicism and he criticizes uh the integralists who he calls manualists there's this recent tradition in uh reason about like the last century or so uh maybe century and a half um this recent tradition in catholicism that's the manualist tradition and the manualists are basically as I understand it, Andrew, if you have a different understanding, please correct me. But as I understand the manualist tradition, it's heavily Thomistic, um, and really focused on it's called that because like in seminaries, they'd be trained with manuals and you couldn't really deviate from the manual. And the manual basically tells you what is, what is permitted in the Thomistic tradition within the Catholic tradition to think and say and do and how exactly to conceive of yourself. And so, uh, Hanby, who I think is a Thomist, um, basically says the problem with this is that it falls victim to this extrinsicism where there's no, there's no sort of imminence permitted for the principles in this case of Thomism, um, to adequately inform our present day. And in fact, you're just sort of, um, keeping them, uh, ossified in their 13th century, 14th century, um, uh, shell and just importing them today. But actually that's not helpful because it doesn't actually give you any real insight into what is happening today it just sort of keeps you in the 14th century um so he calls that he calls that or he labels that extrinsicism and he says this is actually a really bad thing because it makes philosophy an exercise in intellectual archaeology and doesn't allow you to be sort of dynamic enough in, in in incorporating old ideas in new ways into what into what you're doing and so he says collectively when you just make when you have this problem of either not reflecting on what history has said or just sort of extrinsically importing what history has said to your present moment. The ultimate problem is that you can't actually uh, penetrate and fully apprehend the present moment in which you find yourself. So he says, that's the problem. And he says further, this is the problem that the common good constitutionalists, the post liberals have created for themselves. They've basically just taken the sort of manualist Thomas tradition and, uh, you know, kind of square peg round hole, not his analogy, that's mine, uh, have sort of forced it into the present moment and said, This is the answer. Um, This is what we can do. Um, So he says, you know, one of the ways they do this is they talk about the common good, and they sort of treat the common good as the solution here. And they said this is the sort of manualistic solution. The common good is the way that we're going to get out of this crisis of the liberal order. Law is a teacher, you know, we just need to teach people through the law about the common good. And, uh, and that's the way that we get out of this. And he says, um, he says oh, that's true enough that law is a teacher, but to say that you know common good constitutionalism is the way out of this mess is to really fail to grasp the depth of the current mess. There's so much going on here. This metaphysical disaster has touched everything we do, and the whole scheme is wrecked from the beginning. It's just rotten from the core, and we can't just slap a common good veneer on top of it and say law is a teacher and be more open to coercion we actually have to recognize that the whole thing, whole thing is rotten at its core. And he says, so social media and technology have transformed everything about human existence. Uh, he says, Look, for example, in the past few years, riots have been conjured up around the globe, the um, sexual orientation, gender identity movement has just, you know, gone from zero to 60 in about 10 years. Uh, and none of this would have happened without the aid of social media that has allowed these things to spread and be instigated like wildfire. And very importantly, he says, this is not like this is not a conspiracy theory. It's not like, you know, the I don't know one of these like cabals are you know pulling all the strings behind the scenes like puppets no he said it's actually just sort of taken on a life of its own and it's just a sort of uh reaction stimulus uh response that's going on here uh that that allows these things to happen and sort of become a part of the public consciousness without even you know just sort of the hive mind there's no real conscious thought uh, put into it it's just sort of uh in the aggregate and he says um uh, as further evidence that the sort of the whole scheme is wrong. He, he cites Roe v Wade and basically says Roe v Wade fell. That's good. It would have been the right thing. Even if it never saved a single abortion, although it certainly will do that. Um, but just think about how for 49 years we had Roe v Wade as the law of the land and that did so many things. I mean, we talked in the very beginning about just the collapse of men and boys. Andrew, a huge part of that story is on demand, abortion, on demand contraception, it gives men the freedom to, uh, abandon the women, uh, with whom they have children because they don't have to stay with the children. It ab- allows men to sever the consequences of sex from the sex itself. Uh, and ultimately it breaks down the family, breaks down the desire of men to actually have relationships because m- women no longer have the sort of bargaining power over, uh, men. Um, so all kinds of things. And he says, this is just one example of how exactly liberalism has, uh, has failed entirely. And to just you can fix it with common good constitutionalism does not actually fully apprehend how exactly uh it is wrong Uh, it has been wrong uh i'm definitely not hitting my four minute target here andrew but uh, just to to quickly wrap this up he says much better you know rather than looking at you know for example uh some of the summa he says much better to look at lumen gentium and what lumen gentium the document from Vatican II, says about the church and the sacramental nature of the church and he says we have to do that Or we will lapse into the sort of uh, the sort of juridical tendencies of the church of the right or the administrative tendencies of the church of the left. Those perhaps in political terms and sort of um, uh, terms of praxis reflected in the sort of the the post liberals of the right or the sort of woke totalitarians of the left. And he says uh, both of those are wrong because they're accepting the uh, the liberal presuppositions underneath. Even if they say that these things are wrong and they need to be tweaked or they weren't quite based on the right understanding of the human person. They, they're, they're just wrong entirely. And liberalism is so corrupted at its core that we have to, um, we have to pursue alternatives. So um, in sum, he basically says that the, the new post-liberalism doesn't look beyond America. And he said he cites the the site of he cites the name of the recent post-liberal conference i think it was called like restoring a nation and he says like look stanley howar said about christian ethics in america he said christian ethics in america is really about america <laughs> and then and, and said in the same way post-liberalism in america is really about america it's not actually about post-liberalism it's not about integralism really it's not even about the church which is is really what political imagination should be about it's about america and so it's really just it's it's repackaging the same old liberal ideas the same old liberal conceptions and just saying how can we save america with these integralist ideas but he says these two these two things are just fundamentally incompatible so in conclusion his last section the sort of epilogue he says the constellation of philosophy um he says uh he says the solution is philosophy and as we've talked about before and we had bobby Mixa on to talk about this a little bit the solution is sort of to re re-enchant things to sort of re-establish a mystique Um, in our political life. Uh, He says the truth will set you free is not simply a platitude, but an ontological and a theological principle. Um, And we need to do better at conceptualizing the existence, the reality of human existence, the reality of human, the human polis, um, as, uh, you know, ordered according to God, uh, as having a telos uh, according to God, not according to the sort of principles of, um, of possibility and uh, potential that uh, that Francis Bacon would have us believe. So yeah, definitely not 4 minutes Andrew, but that's my best attempt at summarizing the piece. So sorry I went way too long.
1: No, I mean there's so much in this piece that and I know we're we're already running short on time so we won't be able to delve deep into all of the you know all the stuff you just put on the table, but you know, if I may, I just just a couple of like follow-ups to a, a couple of the things that you that you put on the table. You know, the first is that you know Hanby is following this thinker named um, Augusto del Noce, this Italian who died uh, towards the end of the 20th century. Actually, Hanby just wrote a review of Carlo Lancelotti's new translation of um, Augusto del Noce's, one of his books in, in First Things. But um, Hanby, you know, Hanby is following del Noce and sort of saying, look, the problem is not that we're atheists, but that we're, because he would say, you know, atheism is just a kind of bug in the system of of christianity or of theism but rather that we just sort of are irreligious that the mystery is gone the enchantment is gone as you said before you know and you know this connects uh, to what what i took away as kind of the two most striking things about this piece the first one was that that extrinsicism thing that you that you touched on um now kind of in a strictly like catholic theological framework i think we can we can figure some of this out a little bit so you mentioned like the manualist tradition right and and yeah you're exactly right like there was there's a manual like there's the summa from thomas right there's like you need an answer to a question about what to believe or what to think or what to do you look in the book and that's it right in the 20th century there was a strong pushback against that among the most prominent Catholic theologians. These are theologians that I really like. They're not theologians that I, I necessarily think everybody in the post-liberal camp really likes. Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. But people like Henri de Lubac, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and I think the greatest of them all is Joseph Ratzinger. Um, you know, when when Ratzinger, when when um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church was issued in the 1990s, uh, Pope Saint John Paul II's great uh, reform. You know. Kind of re, uh, you know, reissuing of the catechism, the new catechism, Ratzinger wrote about what the catechism was. And he said, specifically what this is, is not a manual. This is not, this is not something that you're like putting in somebody's hand and saying, you know, that you can just like sort of plunk down and apply like, um, it, you know, and it also then relates to the way that we talk, right? Like we don't, we don't just say, I believe this because the church teaches it. We say the church teaches this because it's, reality. Um, So in a sense, like that's the way the catechism, the Catholic church is structured. It's descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's meant to describe reality and very much in opposition to kind of the manualist tradition. Right. And meant to capture this sense that like the universe is enchanted and mysterious and like, you know, sacramental, it's a sacramental reality. And I think this is something that Hamby is like worried that the kind of liberal post liberal thing, kind of both sides really don't, don't get this, this part of it quite right. So I'll just, I'll just name that, and maybe you want to come back to that. I know we're running short on time. But the other thing I really wanted to touch on was also related to the Del Noche stuff is Hanby's insights about technology here. I think that, in a sense, my biggest takeaway from the piece is Hanby is saying, look, liberal, post-liberal, at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter because we're all slaves to the technology that we have created that now rules us that has gotten completely out of control. And he says here, you know, commenting on the idea that like the law can shape people or like, you know, so p- good laws can then kind of reshape culture or reshape society. Now a liberal would say the opposite, right? A liberal would say, you know, laws come from the values of of a culture, right? So it's kind of like flipped around. And I have a lot of sympathy like you to the idea that yeah, actually good laws can actually shape people. We should be working for better laws and and hope to see better results. So I'm totally down with that. But at the end of the day, I also think I pretty much agree with Hanby in saying the horses are out of the barn here. I mean, there's re- it's really tough. In this, one, in this one part, he says, technology does not wait on politics and law is largely impotent and permanently reactive in the face of interminable technological revolution and its exigencies. That was a pretty a pretty powerful line there. And one more thing I'll say before throwing it back to you is, and here Michael Hanby, who like us Zach is a former Anglican, he uh, adapts the opening phrase of the Colic for Purity.
0: I knew you would, he, you would clue on that. Yeah, that's I'm good. glad
1: you expected that out of me, Zach. Yep. But he uh, Hanby says here, Almighty Google, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, is more interior to us than we are to ourselves. And he continues. Compared with such awesome new powers, having a few hundred people gather under a dome for part of a year to deliberate policy seems positively antiquated. Yeah. You know, it's like, grab the levers of power if you want guys, but I yep. mean, really, what are you going to do with it? So no, that's I'll exactly right. I,
0: I read that out loud to my wife last night. And, um, I was like, Sally, this is actually, I was like, I wonder if Hanby is a former Anglican because that is straight from the book of common prayer. And Sally was like, I bet Andrew will recognize it too. And I was like, I bet he will. So yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I'm glad that you clued in on that part. I think that's actually one of the most important takeaways from this because outside of uh, outside of certain, you know, channels of uh, circles of academia, where you're discussing this type of thing on the regular, there's not a whole lot of the popular level, popular level in this handy piece. Um, And a lot of it by his own admission is theoretical. He's not proposing policy solutions. He doesn't say this is exactly how you sort of, uh, you sort of reform the polis along the lines of Augustine's city of God. He mentions Augustine's city of God, but this is not a policy position piece. He's not a wonk, right? He's not a, he's not Ezra Klein, but, uh, he's an incisive critic. And I think for, for most of us, one of the biggest takeaways is exactly that line that you read about almighty Google. Um, And it's terrifying to think about that you know there's all these talks about all all these all this conversation about ai i mean elon musk says ai has a you know non-zero chance of killing us all once it achieves sentience and et cetera et cetera cetera. skynet yada 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 those um those are like interesting thought experiments for me and maybe one day there'll be a a lot more than thought experiment and maybe musk is right and we'll all die at the hand of ai i tend to think that uh we'll be long dead before that because we're just going to sort of sleepwalk into armageddon uh, because of the hive mind, the stimulus, uh, the stimulus response that uh, Hanby talks about here, um, I may for one of our one of our future episodes, uh, Andrew, I may sort of prepare a little monologue on the Ukraine crisis because I think the Ukraine crisis is a great example of this. We have a non-zero chance of nuclear war. The president himself has said we are closer to nuclear Armageddon than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and we have, uh, we have a situation in which it is just um, really kind of verboten, uh, according to the hive mind of Twitter to talk about any, any, uh, you know, ceding any inch of land to Russia, which is obviously the aggressor in the scenario, which is obviously the bad guys uh, led by Putin, of course, the strongman man bully. Uh, so it's just, it's just interesting to see that um, the hive mind is already sort of shaping things. I heard a guy named David Sachs uh, on a podcast the other day say, it's interesting because We have uh, the president who, and and David Sachs is not a, you know, he's not like a Republican right winger. I think he's kind of a centrist, a centrist guy, but um, he's not a radical and he's not a conspiracy theorist. He's a very prominent Silicon Valley investor. And he says, we have a president who's really making decisions because of what his staff tells him to do. We have a staff that's making decisions because of what the media tells him to do. And we have a media who is doing what the keyboard warriors on Twitter tell them to do. So for the first time we have literally diplomacy and foreign policy being sort of constructed in the halls of Twitter, which is obviously not the real world, which is subject to this stimulus, automatic hive mind reaction that Hamby talks about, which is really, really, really bad. And all of this is is enabled by the very same, uh, the very same, uh, scaffolding that supports the liberal project and the Twitter is only a thing because of this, this whole new Atlantis conception of reality and progress and technocracy that we've created for ourselves. Um, that to me is the scariest takeaway from Hanby. And I, you know, I, I think we are sort of sleepwalking toward we are sleepwalking toward our own oblivion. Maybe it's not from nuclear armageddon, it probably isn't, but it's it's from any number of other things that will happen because we don't know how to make good decisions anymore. We don't know how to run a polity if we ever did. We certainly don't now. We don't know how to craft good policy. We only know how to sort of react in the moment to 240 character long tweets that are sent by an, an anonymous, you know, Twitter account that has no clue what they're talking about, but everyone's a pundit. Now the pundit class is the entire population of Twitter. Uh, and that's how, that's how reality happens nowadays. And it's bad. It's not good. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we're, we're really
1: short on time now, but I would just say, you know, the one, the one thing that doesn't seem to me like, a, a waste of breath is, is Hanby's sort of invitation to, um, think about all of these things on a higher level. I mean, you know, um, to be more philosophically minded and, um, you know, a couple of the comments I noticed on the piece said things like, you know, this is unreadable. This is just, you know, full of jargon and and too difficult. And I think in some respects Hanby intended that. I mean, I think that's sort of how he writes anyway, but I think he's also trying to say here, like, Hey, let's at least give it a go. Having this discussion on the highest level, the highest register that we can, because that's what it deserves. Um, so, you know, not a lot of practical takeaways, I don't think from this, except maybe to inspire people to, um, process this stuff on a, on a kind of longer basis, on a deeper basis, and kind of maybe step back a little bit from kind of the journalistic expression of, uh, or the kind of the brand of post-liberalism itself.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. We are just about out of time, Andrew, once again, sorry for the super long summer. I really tried to convince it and then I just kept talking and there was just more and more to go. So apologies. Um, But let's do recommendations. What do you have to recommend to our listeners today?
1: All right, Zach, you know, I think that I am a big wine guy. I very much enjoy the fruit of the vine and uh, it's kind of become a hobby of mine to explore wines, especially from France. Uh, but I have recently become a fan of a YouTube channel hosted by a German guy named Konstantin Baum. Constantine with a K and no E and Baum, B-A-U-M. And uh, his channel is called Konstantin Baum uh, Master of Wine. And, uh, and that is not just a brand, uh, that is an actual designation in the wine trade only about 400 people on the planet earth have it. So Constantine is one of the wine, greatest wine experts in the world. And he has a super entertaining wine channel where he talks about, he compares wines, he tastes old wines. He makes videos about certain regions. He's even recently made one about what the wine might've been like that Jesus served or drank or blessed, et cetera, at the last supper. So great channel. If you're looking for something on YouTube.
0: Very cool. 400 people, master of wine. So this is like the highest level of sommelier, basically highest
1: level. You have to, you have to pass a super difficult blind, uh, blind taste test uh, in order to become, to get this designation. Yeah. And he's one of the youngest people ever to pass the test. Actually.
0: I love it. Well, I will say uh, what I'll, I'll pair something with that. I don't know if you've seen this film, um, Andrew, and if you have, maybe you don't like it as much as I did, but uh, a film about becoming a wine sommelier is called uncorked it's a netflix film have you seen this yeah Andrew? yeah it's good okay. i was a big fan um i mean this isn't like a it's not a hall of fame you know maybe not an academy award winner but i thought it was a a good story with a rather surprising ending but in a good way i thought it was in general well acted i thought the screenplay was well done um and it was it was it was good it was good but it's it's about a young man who desires to become a sommelier uh and there are some other twists and turns along the way and his whole family, uh, his young black man, his whole family runs a barbecue restaurant. And so that's been the expectation for him his whole life. But he really loves wine and wants to be a sommelier. So it's sort of the story of, uh, of their their family working through that and of him uh, trying to make it happen. And it's good. So I encourage you to go watch Uncorked. It was a fun a fun yarn, and I thought it was well done. Didn't didn't quite get the reviews that, it, that, that I think it should have. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes. It had a 92% tomato meter score, 64% audience, which... It's pretty low on the audience side. Hmm. I liked it a lot more than 64%, but um, all right. So that's my recommendation. Uh, All right. Anything else, Andrew? That's it for me. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to another episode. Thanks once again to Pat for his listener feedback. If you have a note you want to send us, it's EAC at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.